where do we go from here? Is the whole world going to end? Is this really the best that we can do? What is the alternative? What would it look like? What is the plan? What is the next stage in the evolution of human civilization? These are not hypothetical questions, and the whole point of this show is to answer them. We're your hosts, Matt Holton, Amanda Smith, and yours truly, Zachary Marlowe. I consider this episode a benchmark, a primer on the root problems in the world today and the alternative vision we have to transition beyond it. We've been doing this show for quite a while now, and we've covered a huge range of topics all across the spectrum of exploitation, collapse, and the shimmering prospects that lay on the other side of that. But every episode, we keep coming back to this word, the system. We cycle back to this phrase again and again. It's not this, it's the system. The system is the problem, and the only true solution is in redesigning it altogether. So let's clarify. What do we mean when we say the system? It's a good question, and, and in reality, there's no just one system. It's it's lots and lots of different systems that work together in various ways. And I mean, when you're talking about systems theory or systems thinking, it's it essentially encompasses everything we do all the time. You know, every everything is systems. The, the entire world, you know, all the ecosystems of the planet, uh, the economy our uh, methods of production, our socioeconomic system, every, there's all these different systems and, and no one of them is independent of any of the other. And I think that's that's kind of the mindset that a lot of us are kind of stuck in is, is that somehow these things operate independently from each other. However, from a system standpoint, from a systemic point of view, from systems theory and thinking and all that, it really, the science is all about trying to take a step back and viewing the relationships between all these different systems and how they work, how they interact with each other, how our economic system interacts with our ecological system and our biosphere uh, and the planet and our resources, how we as humans, you know, we have our own systems that we go about with on a daily basis. We ourselves are comprised of, you know, different body systems. And the systems that we're really talking about primarily a lot of the time on this show that affect us the most and really affect the m- most of everything that goes on in the planet are is our socioeconomic system, which which is capitalism. It's our mode of, mode of production and the way our market economy goes about manufacturing goods. It's, it's our economic mode. And, and I think that's one of the main problems with the socioeconomic system that we have right now is it's based on growth and consumption. It, it essentially requires every individual in it has to pay rent and work to survive uh, just to exist. Essentially, it's incentivized the commoditization of practically everything that it requires for a human being to live. You know, there's nothing as really for free anymore except for about the air we breathe and the sunshine that comes down from the sky and and other than that we probably pay for most of the other things that we see and do and ingest and enjoy on a daily basis and um, you know over the long term our socioeconomic system has really incentivized us doing that you know the profit mechanism provides that incentive to do that and through the mechanism of banking and interest and things like that now our economic mode really has to grow in order for it to sustain sustain itself. You know, every good economist will say, well, you know, we have to have such and such amount of growth and a healthy economy and this and that and the other. And so growth is really baked into our socioeconomic system through the mechanisms of banking and interest and, uh, you know, other systems, in fact, you know, that are really the monetary system and all the different things that it kind of revolves around. The growth is essentially, uh, you know, a part of that. Eventually, you know, we do hit the end of our resources. Essentially, eventually we do hit those limits to growth. And I'm sure a lot of people that show heard that before it's no surprise to them you know we uh, we can't grow forever on a finite plan and eventually we have to curtail that growth and, and keep it back somehow otherwise we hit some sort of uh you know stopping point some barrier that prevents us from growing any further and that is essentially what's happening now in the form of climate change and exceedingly uh you know more disastrous and catastrophic natural disasters and whatnot and i think now uh, when this is being recorded here in july of 2021 we've had some you know, incredible heat waves this year of, you know, even more forest fires every single year around. A lot of people are starting to wake up to the fact that we can't just eat continuously emit carbon into the atmosphere based on this economic mode of growth and consumption 
you know, for decades to come and everything be okay. You know, when when uh, a town in where is it British Columbia just set you know a, a you know just smashed completely smashed their pre- previous heat record by like f- four or five degrees Celsius, and then the entire town burned to the ground. Was it Lighton? I think is it Lighton, British Columbia, and now the town is essentially wiped off the map. You know, with one heat wave. How many how many more times is that going to happen in the years to come before people finally start to recognize that hey um you know maybe maybe things need to change maybe this economic mode of growth and consumption isn't really going to cut it you know even if we can transition over to you know clean energy what is it in the next 10 years or something um i personally don't think it's fast enough i think we need to do more i I try not to give up hope you know but (laughs) here i am we do our best right I could just really echo everything Matt was saying, and though he didn't say it in these terms, basically, uh, when I hear the word systems, uh, every thought that comes to mind is derogatory. I just am bombarded by derogatory terms like uh, systemic indoctrination, exploitation, uh, extraction, you know, all all those big buzzwords. But I'm also reminded that systems, just like most anything else that man has come up with, has dual purposes. It can be used for good. There are system designs out there that would take us from this world of scarcity and doom and gloom into a world of abundance and sustainability and and longevity. Uh, How do we get there, of course, is the question, and and how to evolve out of this one into Regardless of whether we like it or not, we're a part of a system. You know, ecosystems, like Matt said, you know, make up this entire earth. None of us is... Uh, exists on their own, you know. Uh, we we cannot live without uh, a volley of symbolic relationships. It's a it's a difficult shift for people to to go from this very simplistic this then this then this this linear atomized uh, way of dealing with things of dealing with reality and and also in a very binary way where it's either you're this or you're this or you're this or you're this. That's that's really this duality that is radically simplifying our life so that we can deal with it, so we can make it through the day. And I honestly don't think that's the natural state. I think it's actually a reactive state that has come about through industrialization, mass production, specialization, all of these you know, continuing reductions of what a human being is to fit them into this specific system, which is a money system, which is a profit system, which is an industrial production-based system, which at this point in our lives is truly unnecessary. It's truly outdated. It's not in line with our technology or our capacity to connect with each other, with our communications technology, with our ability to communicate, and just the fundamental awareness of our deep interconnectedness that COVID has shown us, that the you know isolated trading habits of one country or the, the health of one nation, of one person on the other side of the world will inevitably find its way to every single one of us. So whether we like it or not, we are connected. So I kind of want to dig a little bit deeper because this is just what I've been fixated on. I've been obsessed with trying to figure out from the most fundamental basis how this system works. What makes the world go round? And, you know, we all know the answer to that question. It's money. It's a money sequence of value. That value itself is derived from money. That is the, I think, in in trying to, to splay it out, because it's not a linear system. It's, a, it's an endlessly sort of cyclical web of feedback loops that all feed into each other. And money is the center of that. The, the fundamental core belief of, of our world is that money is value. So if something is profitable, it's good. And, and this, is, this is a great way to uh, make lots of things. Say, say you, know, you make Nike shoes profitable and the money keeps flowing in to make more Nike shoes. It's, it's a pretty efficient in a very completely narrow way of producing a shitload of Nike shoes. But the problem with that is that most of the things in the world that, you know, are really truly of service and of good to this earth, you know, meeting people's needs on a fundamental basis, health, ending homelessness, you know, solving climate change, being sustainable, it's not possible to make those things profitable. You know, something like Wikipedia, which is an unquestionable common good for all, it has to continue to find ways to make itself profitable or it can't exist because it needs the infrastructure of you know the internet it needs to compete in this system and even companies that have a massive uh, ability to generate profit have to generate more all the time because it's a competitive system if somebody else comes along that can outproduce them at a cheaper rate they're going to go out of business
when the overall economic mode of things is essentially just kind of growth at any cost, you know, then I think we're much more likely to hit the limits of those resources in some terms or the other, rather than just simply curtailing our growth back a bit, uh, you know, and kind of calming down our production and, and consumption, uh, you know, by essentially eliminating that need for the growth, you know, by transitioning over to a different sort of economic mode that doesn't require just continuous activity all the time. Uh, I think that's kind of one of the biggest, you know, points of, you know, post-capitalist society is just to kind of wind down the activity to a large degree to essentially what's only necessary, you know, to keep people housed with food and energy and clothing and all and all that sort of stuff. But no, I don't want to say like luxuries or things like that, but I'm just saying like, you know, eliminate the unnecessary activity and positions, uh, you know, back and forth commutes with, you know, millions of people in all these cities every day to financial positions and insurance companies. And, and a lot of these things are just kind of, you know, the yeah, ideas and numbers and paperwork being traded around that essentially could be eliminated with more efficient, uh, you know, decision making systems that we have now. Money is kind of the tool. Which is why a resource-based economy would make sense, because everything would be managed equitably and practically and rationally, uh, which would eliminate, as uh, dear David would say, all the bullshit jobs, and uh, subsequently would eliminate so many arms of the capitalist machine that thrive off of these bullshit jobs and the things that we have to do and the hoops we have to jump through to, uh, to, to maintain that. Well, it's all about driving this consumer cycle of endlessly producing more of things and it's it's like really zeroing in on this alone has been very sort of transcendent for me and just focusing and just see really seeing truly how unsustainable this is so say you know you make solar panels profitable and that's a renewable energy source you're going to still have to produce endless solar panels so that's going to require endless extraction of the resources that it takes to make them endless labor to make those things and then it, you know it, this this system itself uh, it needs endless growth. You need to produce more and more and more all the time. So that means more waste. That means more pollution. So pollution and waste, they track perfectly with growth and profit and productivity in this extremely narrow sense of what it is to be profitable. So it, it's not tethered to our resources. It's not intelligently managed. It's not actually based on our real carrying capacities. And I think a lot of it is just technically outdated the ways that we think about managing these resources. We create way, 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 way more than we actually need, but we need to continue making more and sort of stratifying and taking that excess and funneling it into these weird areas or literally burning it and destroying it. Like I saw a lot of clothing companies, high-end clothing companies, because everything is, it's all about scarcity. The scarcity of something dictates how profitable it is. But how do you get a nation that's been indoctrinated to believe that the more they have material-wise, the more freedom they have to reverse that belief, you know? I mean, that that's that's the basis of the whole problem. I think the only real way to, to do it is to provide people with an alternative of some sort to where they can actually see it in action and there's a proof of concept that these things would actually work. And local, you know, local to where they can actually visit and maybe even stay somewhere like that and experience it, learn about how it operates, uh, you know, take part in it possibly, attend some demonstrations or some seminars and things like that. Um, but how would a society like that operate? I, let's get into the meat of it. How, how would, you know, a resource-based economy me essentially operate why what makes it so much better that's one of the questions that i get asked most out of out of everything essentially is how would a you know post post capitalist society work and um you know what, what what are the details of some of it basically it all comes down to freedom we need to change the parameters of what we think freedom is truly are we free if we can't leave our job because we lose our health care are we free if we can't make choices and participate in our environment and in our you know, system if we don't have money and we have to you know, do very unfree things like enslave other people and you know, topple other countries to attain that freedom? Are we free if our world itself is dying? If we don't have a world to live on, we're not free at all. So I think the, the, the main reason why a resource-based economy is really like the only sensible way of even thinking about this is that we have to tether our economies. We have to really truly economize 
uh, the resources of this planet. We have to actually intelligently manage them and use all the technology that we can and all of our collective and collaborative potential to manage those resources, to make it so that our environment, our, our economic system is directly tied to the resources of a, of a local community that are accessed, uh, that are intelligently managed by you know, network feedback, by you know, machine learning, by algorithms, by the actual cutting edge technology that we have you know, to cybernetically manage resources without some arbitrary political process that controls, oh, we're going to get this, you're, you get this amount of resources because we say you do in this kind of uh, Soviet sort of model or in the market model where it's just cr the crazy willy-nilliness of the, the invisible hand of the market and these manipulated, you know, stock-driven market dynamics that decide what gets produced. What gets produced is based on the resources of a region and the need of the people, which is intelligently managed, not by a corruptible human, but by a system that we collectively program to manage our environment. I'd like to touch on a few of the details uh, in particular. Um, there's an article that Peter Joseph just wrote not too long ago. The Social Architect, a new framework for effective activism and social leadership. He's got a nice little diagram or, or image that he's made there. And it's got a semicircle with five uh, different sections within that semicircle. And I think Peter Joseph's done a really good job in summing it up. All these areas combined together essentially are able to, you know, create an economic mode of production that doesn't need money anymore. Those five different areas are automation, access, open source, localization, and digital feedback. I'd just like to talk about each one of them for a second and just kind of detail a little bit about, you know, what, what those things would look like. So for automation, uh, we have transition from labor for income emphasis to machine automation emphasis. So the goal is to maximize productive capacity, reduce human exposure, and increase efficiency, right? And so that means essentially that we're using technology to automate as much as we can, right? We're not afraid of using robots, of technology, of computer programs, of algorithms to grow food, to wash our dishes, to mow our lawn, to manufacture our goods, to uh, drive our cars, uh, and other things like that. And, and that eliminates a huge portion of the labor that's involved or needed in a society like this, right? So we're automating a large portion of, you know, the activity and just, uh, you know, human labor that might be necessary at this point. But in the future, we're trying to eliminate that labor through the means of automation. One of the biggest problems with our world today is unemployment. And people can't survive in this world because there's not enough jobs being created. And like with all the fossil fuel jobs that are going away, with all the jobs that are going, going to go away from trucking, and they should because people die on the road more than any other, other cause of death. So there's a crisis of unemployment that a monetary system cannot solve. And automation in this current uh, system is just going to lay off billions of people. Billions of people are going to have no job and no way to make money. So a system where everybody's, you know, uh, the, all the work that is not needed to be done, or all, the, all the work that we need to do to get by is essentially automated, freeing people up to do the work that humans can only, can only do, you know, creative work, make music, uh, you know, inventive scientific discoveries, innovation, creativity, uh, homekeeping, you know, community building, and then just living. So access-based, access essentially means a lot of the things like that we would quote-unquote own today, we wouldn't necessarily own, we would access them, right? Like we could access a vehicle, we could access a shopping cart, you know? It's there when we need it, but we don't necessarily need it all the time. And so those resources can be shared a good portion of the time. And by, and by using access to things, essentially we're able to distribute, uh, you know, resources like that between a greater amount of people and, and they go further, essentially. Instead of a vehicle sitting in somebody's driveway for 22 hours a day and them only driving it for two hours a day, that same vehicle could service 10 different people or 10 different families possibly, you know, depending on what times they need to be in certain places. And it can act as an autonomous taxi, essentially, right? As, you know, or right now you have Uber drivers, but a few years from now, they'll probably all be autonomous as well. And so that's what we'll likely have is things like that. Autonomous vehicles where you have access to them when you need them them. And that way, you know, one fifth of the amount of cars is, uh, you know, enough to service as many people as we as we would have right now. Or Before anybody ahead. hears that and thinks you're taking you're coming from our private property. I mean, really, open access is a way for everybody to have not less but more. I mean, unless you're, you know, a super billionaire that has 
a yacht for your yacht, <laughs> I mean, you're going to be getting a lot more out of a, of a system like that where whatever you need or even really want, I mean, because it's not just need. It's not like, you know, we have to have this fascistic way of, of scaling back all necessity. Everybody's basic needs and even luxury needs can be totally met and exceeded. And it's like, say you want to go out on the weekend and drive your boat, but you don't have a boat. Today in this environment, you know, you got to work your ass off for 30 years to get a boat. If you want a boat, you just go to, to a lake and there's boats that you can use, <laughs> you know, and because there's less of them being used, they're easier to maintain, you know, and with a centralized sort of production, you know, even even the repairs that are needed, I think everything would be made in a way that is modular, that is open source, that is, you know, anybody can uh, change it and adapt it to, to, you know, to suit their actual needs. I mean, ima imagine you don't have to work. You don't have to work. You don't die if you don't work. You know, anybody who does want to contribute to society you can, and you have the tools. If it's an open access economy, you have open access to all the education you need, instruments, cameras, whatever you need to express yourself and contribute to the human race in a real way, not just working at Arby's to stimulate the economy. We're, we're, don't you want to live in that world? Come on. And we're not going to die? The, the point you're making... Uh, you know, is is uh, profound on the surface, obviously, but but much deeper than that. Really, it goes when you unpack it all and look at the logistics of that thought process. You realize that people are accepting the reality of having to be exploited and break their back and work uh, ridiculously hard for their entire lives to own a few things versus having access to whatever they could need. You know, it just doesn't make sense. It's nonsensical as the day is long. We've been so indoctrinated with that with that buzz term, engineered scarcity, that we can't even conceptualize what it'd be like to have access to anything and everything we'd want to use or enjoy. And that's that's really the root of that problem when it comes to transitioning from a possessive uh, socioeconomic system to a, an access economy. Yeah, that's a good point too. We wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily have all these uh, various ways that companies purposefully limit. Uh, you know, people are getting goods. And a lot of it's not necessary to especially like digital goods. You know, I mean, we could have access to all kinds of, uh, you know, free information and software and things like that out there. Uh, but, you know, be simply because that information is, uh, you know, able to be duplicated, a uh, you know, an unlimited number of times digitally, uh, and it doesn't require, uh, you know, very much energy in order to do that. Uh, so, I mean, things like that, like paywalls, essentially, as well. Uh, there's a lot of different things that, uh, you know, would go away in, a, in an open access economy like that. One, one real um, quick point so to that and to the technology industry. Um, I was talking to my dad the other night, and um, he is, has been kind of a tech pioneer all his life. He worked for a company called Lotus Development, and they had a development lab. And he told me that, you know, things didn't leave the lab, like they didn't release things from the lab. Things had to escape because they had all this technology and all these things that they created, like they created instant messaging way, like, like a decade before the public had access to it. But they couldn't figure out how to make it profitable. So it didn't leave the lab. So they couldn't make a profit off this thing. They couldn't figure out, uh, how can we get people to pay us for, to pay for this service if we just give people this service that allows them to communicate with each other instantaneously? Yeah, I don't know. It can't make, it's a net good for human human life, you know. How can- <laughs> But it's not profitable. Anybody hear a story like that and, and still believe that competition in the competitive market is a friend to innovation? It's just not. It's actually the, the exact opposite. It absolutely inhibits, if not, completely thwarts the process of innovation and collaboration. Competition, bad. Collaboration, good. Well, we're, we're, I think we have a natural bent towards competition. We want to be great. We want to do well. It's like we don't need to make our whole society about incentivizing Yeah, but that. the artificial hierarchy narrative has caused us to exasperate our ideology about what a hierarchy is and what doing good and accomplishment actually is to the point that it's been integrated into every aspect of our life, you know? especially when it comes to the money that we earn and the jobs that we secure and the status quo that, that we maintain. It's a profound point. And I mean, I think every single one of these points as, as like maybe on the surface, you know, they're, they're technically aloof or they, they, the brain doesn't immediately hear, you know, open access or, you know, the imagination isn't immediately freed up or we don't grasp the immensity of these changes that we can make to our society that would change us on a profound and fundamental level, all for the, for the better. 
because so much of the insecurity in the world comes around ownership, comes around possession. You know, people are possessive. We can become possessive of people because we inter- we we live in this industrial environment. Everything is mass produced. You know, our ideas are becoming mass produced. Music is mass produced. You know, it, and all of these, all of our attitudes toward each other are transactional and and possessive. I can't I can't overstress how what a disgusting thing even the word it, it feels in my mouth because. You know, the truly true, like love, like love itself is an acceptance that we exist together or an appreciation of somebody on a profound level. And it's become a, an ownership thing. And that is a, a corruption of, of life and value on the deepest, deepest level. Capitalism has commodified every aspect of life to the point that our interactions with everyone and every relationship capacity boils down to possessiveness. If not consciously, subconsciously. If you're ordering food from a drive through window, you expect that person to deliver what you ask for and nothing more. You don't care who they are, if you know how they might need support. It doesn't matter. If your order isn't right, you're likely going to be upset and you're not even going to think about the fact that it's because you think you possess that, uh, that, that entitlement, that, that privilege that right to just expect something and get it. And then in relationships, the the four letter word love, that's another arm of possessiveness. You know, love is, is a Disney, is is a Disney dream. It's, it's not what we've been taught. It is. It's another arm of possessiveness. I could go on and on and I won't because we don't have time today, but um, yeah, I really want to hear the other points that Matt wants to expound on, but I just wanted to point that out that we all really need to analyze the place that we're coming from when we say we love someone or whenever we're having any kind of, of interpersonal reaction with someone because possessiveness has creeped into every every transaction that we make. I guess we've kind of been talking about open source uh, really because you know we've been talking about possession and open access to everything now that kind of sums up what open source is is the opposite of all that essentially giving away things for free uh whether it be you know copyrights or information or everything like that there's no uh you know no more possession of information or copyrights or things like that everything is shared openly as far as uh you know like proprietary quote-unquote business information but there wouldn't be business so to speak these are like world-changing shifts condensed to a very simple sort of web of changes that need to happen. I mean, open source, it's like COVID is a perfect example of this. I mean, the vaccine patents aren't being shared with the world because that's a proprietary profit, for-profit piece of property, you know, an idea, a world-changing idea. I mean, and the crazy thing is like insulin, insulin is proprietary, you know, and the, the, the creators of insulin sold the patent for a dollar because they wanted it to be a universal human good. And now insulin costs hundreds of dollars. It costs people, you know, an Xbox a week, like $200 a week or something, or they die. And it's like, the, the, you know, to get back to COVID, you know, because we can't distribute these vaccines to the world and make them, you know, the common good of all, and they're proprietary and jealous and guarded, you know, uh, these other variants are developing all over the world that, you know, we're going to continue having to deal with this problem perhaps indefinitely, just because we can't share something that is costs pennies to manufacture and, and imminently affects the good of everyone. Next one is localization. So that would essentially mean that we try to produce as much locally uh, as possible. We're minimizing the transport of items, right? We don't ship things over to Vietnam to be packaged and then all the way back to the United States and, and things like that. Uh, you know, the more localized we can make our production, our resources, uh, and everything of that nature, the better, essentially. What does home mean to all of us? What, what, is, the, what is the place that we live, you know, if, if not a, you know, a profound extension of who we are? And all of our homes are, in a way, becoming essentialized and turned into the same sprawl of suburbs with, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken and Taco Bell and Target and all of these stores. And they're being you know, blanketed in concrete to serve as a, you know, vehicle for globalization of, of trucks to bring in, bring food and everything in. You go to the grocery store and you, you get a red pepper. You know, it's the same pepper you could grow in your own garden, but it's from Canada or it's from Argentina. And that's flown all the way there. And it's the crazy thing about that is it's not better to do that. Different varieties and strains of food are unique to different regions. And it, having access to just all of the same food everywhere you go, is it better? It's worse. <laughs> because there's there's a beauty and a uniqueness to being able to eat of like you know the foods that actually come from your region and and it's not just a you know a nice thing it's not all about our convenience it's about the stability of ecosystems that 
you know, that we have, you know, completely de divorced ourselves from the, from the world. And in this weird way of globalization, connecting everything together, it's made everything the same and, and disconnected us truly from where we actually live. Being disconnected from where we actually live and speaking about how food is shipped around, you know, from this place to that place and then back to the place it's going to be sold. And I can already hear the naysayers going, well, if you didn't ship it to Argentina, then how would those people make money to make a living? And, and what they don't stop and think about is the fact that if there wasn't a paywall between them and the food that's local to them, they wouldn't have to package food from 100, you know, 1,000 miles away in order to make the money to buy the food that's local to them. And that's why we just need to cut out the middleman and just give people what they need to live you know, and and access to what they need to be a contribution to society instead of whatever words you want to use, slacky, lazy, uh, de you know, pe people want to say that without jobs that people would get lazy, but we know that's not true. If people simply had access to education and tools, people would be a contribution to society instead of there being millions of people on welfare draining, quote unquote, draining the government and our tax money because there aren't enough jobs and there aren't enough resources out there because they're being hoarded by the wealthy and the corporate class. That was a bit of a rabbit hole. It brings up another point on the, the open source aspect of it is that, you know, the open source communities have created so much value, you know, for the world. I mean, just look at something like Minecraft that people spend hundreds of hours in every day of their life or Wikipedia. You know, people write every Wikipedia entry and they spend it. They don't they don't get paid to do it. And there's so many advancements that we have made collectively and together that people don't get paid a dime for. I mean, it's just it's just a bullet I, hole in the whole. I actually, oh, that is excellent and, uh, <laughs> example. Actually, uh, the, the video game. I guarantee you that some of the people, probably a very large percentage of the people that spend hundreds of hours building these these communities virtually, you're damn skippy. They would do it in reality if they had the ability, the access, the permission, basically. But they don't. So they escape into that virtual world and try to make it their own. And when, when that's not necessary, there's there, there so many people out there capable of making the world the place that we all envisioned it to be to begin with. And, and they're just suppressed and they're oppressed by the monetary system. I think the biggest point of localization is we need to shift away from this this uh, centralizing of everything, this mass production of thought, of organization, of every single thing in our world, where individual communities don't have any agency. You know, they, they we're trying to we're trying to map uh, models of being and and you know uh, jobs and you know forms of resource extraction to areas that it's not native to, and that's completely destabilizing to the ecosystem, the real systems of the planet that we are destroying this world. And we are, you know, subjugating countless nations and peoples to this essentialized, you know, hegemony, this this radically reductive idea of capitalism, of this one way of living, that this is the only way to live, this is the only system that can work. And the the the, the big point of localization is that it's returning power to to the people. It's returning power to all of these communities. So we need to do this. This isn't a, a oh, it would be better if things were. It would be better, but it's a necessity. It's an it's a necessity that we would these individual communities actually work on their own. So digital feedback uh, is the next topic, and regarding you know how all this would come together. Essentially, digital feedback would use a lot of sensors through computers, you know, and just other methods of gaining data as far as uh, consumption of resources, exactly uh, what is being used where, what is needed in certain places. This could be for uh, food items like agricultural items or uh, other household items or industrial items like chemicals, raw materials, resources, things like that. There's a lot of different places where uh, feedback systems could be intertwined uh, through various, you know, like production systems even also instead of the price mechanism dictating, uh, you know, a lot of where a lot of resources go simply uh, we input, you know, through computer algorithms and feedback devices where those resources are needed most based on certain criteria. And, and then we have these systems essentially figure these things out for us. Um, you know, I mean, there's always a certain human element to it, especially in the beginning. But I believe over time, uh, you know, more and more of these processes would be automated based on uh, feedback from sensors uh, and, and also user feedback as well. You know, just democratically engaging the public through 
you know, say applications and, uh, you know, voting systems and gaining feedback about what the public think about certain uh, directions and policies, decisions. As far as digital feedback, there's a lot of different ways that could be interpreted in a lot of different applications, but that is another central tenet as far as how a moneyless society uh, would operate. Well, basically, it's it's the it's adding the Internet of Things, which is this, the, you know, progressive smartifying of all objects in our world, you know, not just our phone. And, you know, uh, it's, it's basically everything in our world has the capacity to be smart, to be connected to a grid, to be constantly in communication with itself. So our entire, uh, imagine a smart house, you know, we, we can kind of conceive of that, but imagine a smart city everywhere. Every aspect of it is connecting and communicating with itself. The resource management aspect of this, it's basically the way, you know, grocery stores today are in a, in a lot of ways use sensors and things like that to automate the process of stock taking and understanding what is running out, what we have. So a lot of these processes, we essentially have the infrastructure of it already built. And as far as automating away the corruptive and insanely inefficient, bafflingly stupid political processes that we have that are in no way a form of direct democracy, that are, that is this crazy form of mediation, we can automate almost all of that away and create a truly sort of connected social media infrastructure, a political autocorrect, if you will. There was actually, I was reading the other day about this project CyberSyn in Chile, which was in the 70s. They essentially uh, had this American cyberneticist fly over and design them a resource management and production distribution software. Basically, you know, a precursor to a resource-based economy, which is a computer system that automates away all of the basically market functions of price regulation and you know, saying we need this much production of this product, we need this much distribution of this product. Basically, in the 70s, they they did it. I mean, they made it to where it worked, and it was picked up by, you know, Western propagandists, uh, news media, and things like that, and they cried, oh, big brother, big brother, and they shut it down. The Nixon administration said, we absolutely can't allow this to happen, because like like what's going on in Cuba right now, with sanctions and economic warfare, we just can't allow a third world nation to thrive, you know that we can't allow abundance to take root in any of these systems or nations, as they are all parts of a system of resource extraction and over management and control by systems today. So basically, digital feedback it's, it seems difficult for a lot of people to wrap their heads around, but it's really just bringing all of our uh, mediated systems into the 21st century, truly meeting our actual capacities and technical abilities to just automate away so much of these processes that take up so much of our lives that are so corruptible that one bad person can completely mess up and taking away the ability for one individual to become despotic or powerful or to hold a, a position of power like Nancy Pelosi or um, Chuck Schumer or Biden or um, Mitch McConnell, any of these people that have had political office for decades, they use that position of power to leverage their influence and control the system and, and manipulate it. Where a process where we automate away those things and allow basically make it so that it's a one-to-one -one direct democracy completely invalidates that, completely outmodes that. And it also outmodes a lot of uh, Marxist conceptions of workers' councils to mediate production and you know state versus no state. It just effectively obsoletes all of these questions. We can automate away all of these antiquated, rust-covered power structures and social organizational forms of the past and make it so that we all have collective autonomy. Digital feedback is the is how uh, Peter Joseph has, has worded it in his book, uh, The New Human Rights Movement. And um, and, and so inside the circle, right, we, we just went around the outside of the circle there, right, with those five things, automation, access, open source, localization, and digital feedback. Uh, so all those five things are essentially aiming to achieve essentially scarcity reduction, increased sustainability, and inequality reduction. So all these things are kind of working together in harmony to create a reduction of scarcity, right? So we're trying to create an abundance of goods uh, to where what you need and what you want, you have access to it. You don't necessarily have to have a yacht or a jet ski or a mansion or everything like that to be happy and to have everything that you need, right? You have access to what you need. You have access to the education, to the food, to the housing, to clothing, to entertainment, to uh, you know community and culture and to lots of other different things in your life, right? Uh, so with all these systems together, we're, we're aiming to achieve these things as well. Uh, so the second one is increased sustainability. Right. We, we want all these things to essentially to 
not contribute to global warming for one, right? We want to start sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere and as well as we want to use our resources wisely, right? We want these things to not damage the environment. We want them to start doing the opposite, to regenerate the environment instead. Uh, we want to cut down on our resource usage as well as the uh, fossil fuel usage and make that sustainable, right? So we're using all these things to achieve increased sustainability. And last but not least, um, inequality reduction you know, so in a sense, there's nobody at the very top or at the bottom, right? There's no Jeff Bezos and there's no, you know, labor that just got hired on yesterday that, you know, just takes orders from everyone else. Essentially, everybody's a part. Everybody has uh, ownership in these types of systems. And, um, you know, it's, it's it's for us to figure out exactly how all that will work, right? It's equitable, meaning fair. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is equal all the time in every way, 100% of the time, because that's obviously not the case. And it's not realistic a lot of the time. It's, it's what's fair, and it's what's equitable. And it's what works for everyone, essentially. And those are the systems that we're trying to achieve and uh, implement. Another point uh, toward the open access uh point of that which to so many people is like oh you're taking away my private property that's like their worst nightmare but elon musk's actual plan for tesla is to corner the market on self-driving vehicles and basically shift more toward an access-based uh ownership service where they they have all the cars and you just use them so this is this is actually amazing to me that capitalism the free market has innovated away the actual Orwellian dystopia that people have been uh, decrying or saying that socialism was going to bring for generations. So it's like an open access economy doesn't touch personal property which is your toothbrush, your car, any of these things at all. You know, it, it affects private property which is a water source or you know, land or something that is, you know, privatized for the use of production, that is the good of all, where the crazy future that we're going to, where iniquity is so great and acquisition is so total by these very few people that they own infrastructure altogether. They own communications infrastructure like Zuckerberg. They own the transportation infrastructure like, like uh, Elon Musk wants to do so that you don't own a car, you just rent it. Like, I mean, we're doing that already with Uber and Lyft and all of this stuff. So many people don't own their cars. They just pay, pay them down. But this system, this capitalist system is innovating a system where you don't have personal property. There's only private property and you don't own it at all. <laughs> so that's what's happening already. And these people are terrified. Elon Musk is talking all the time. He's got this real paranoid thing about AI coming alive and, and you know, destroying everything. And, and there's this Terminator view of AI that's going to do this. Well, AI, it's a machine that learns it and it does what we tell it to do. Like our algorithms for social media, we tell them to generate profit. So we want people to, to remain on pages. We want them to you know, click more. So we want to basically the algorithm intentionally shows you things that piss you off to keep you clicking more. So it's like if we did create an artificial intelligence, a truly intelligent AI, you know, something that's capable of monitoring all of us, that has access to all our information, all the data that we're producing, and it's going to do what we're telling it to do, which is generate profit at the expense of all life. It's like our child and it learns from us. An abusive, an abused child learns how to be abusive. They can't help it. So if we create an algorithm or an artificial intelligence, and I'm sure we're well underway of doing that, with the ethos, with the consciousness of profit motivating it, it will absolutely destroy all life on Earth. It will right. re it will reduce life into death for profit. It's like the but it's if, like the paperclip generator. Have you heard of the paperclip generator? It, it basically it's a it's an algorithm, you know, for a machine to just make paperclips, right? So it can make paperclips out of you know pretty much whatever you get it, right? But its ultimate purpose is to make paperclips, and so you know it runs out of certain materials to make paperclips, but it finds other materials to make paperclips, and eventually you know just it turns the entire world into paperclips. That and sounds like it, a Rick and Morty um, plot, <laughs> honestly. And that's the end of the story, right? <laughs> right. It's essentially like profit, you know, it just eat up the entire world except it's profit instead of paperclips, so. Well, paperclips are actually more substantial than profit because it's just numbers <laughs> in a machine. <laughs> At least they're useful. Say anyway. <laughs> I was going to say, you came really close to making a point. Maybe you did, and I just disassociated for a moment or something. But making the point that even in the monetary system where supposedly we have personal property, you still don't own anything. You still don't own it. 
So why 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 are you clinging to things to material things so so strongly? Because it's, even if you pay off your car, you're still paying for the insurance, and, st- and and even if you don't make insurance payment, you've got land taxes, and even if you don't have land taxes, you might have a mortgage, and if you don't have mortgage, you have to pay for the food you eat, and and so on and so on. Nobody really owns anything as long as we're still paying someone to access the things that we want and we need. So why do we continue to do that? It just blows my mind. But I guess I just have a really simple mindset. Like it just gets so redundant. Uh, I want to be with those people that 10 or 20 years from now, I'm still on this path of helping the transition come to life. And hopefully it won't even take that long, but you know, to be realistic. But at the same time, I look at people who've been on this path for decades and I don't know how they're still doing it because I'm already like, why are we still talking about this? Why is how, why haven't we changed paths yet? You know, it, I, it, I just can't. <laughs> well, it's, it's the most propagandized. It's the deepest myth. Uh, in our culture, you know, the predominance of money. I mean, you tell people, you know, oh, I, I want to move beyond money. And they, even if they're like, even if they call themselves like some radical, they're like, oh, that's utopian. You know, they, you say, you say you want to, you want autonomous, basically freedom. You want, you want basically direct democracy in a system where there's not a ruler and a subject. And even radicals will say, oh, that's utopian. Well, no, no, no. No, we need a little tyranny for a little while, and then we'll gradually taper it off, and then we'll be free. And it's like, what are you talking about? People are so completely religiously inured into this delusion that the way that we do things is somehow inherent or intuitive or necessary, that to question that, it's you're you're the ultimate heretic of our time. And on that note, I, I really want to address the audience with a question. I'd just love to see this feedback in the comments. You, have you ever been in the situation where you're you're realizing that you, you like what you're doing, the job's going well, you appreciate your coworkers and their inputs and stuff, and then it comes down to a point where if your coworkers are getting ahead of you in some some capacity, you are going to lose out. And, and I don't know about you all, but recently I've become more and more aware of how that, that uh, survivalist voice in the back of my head starts getting louder and louder. Like, no, you, you can't let that coworker do better than you. You can't let them get one up on you because then you won't be able to survive as easily or even at all, perhaps. Like basically that, that competitive mindset, like I've just become painfully aware of it and it's really hard to do away with. And I, we just, we need a system that's based on collaboration, or we're just going to compete ourselves into oblivion. We're just going to compete ourselves out of existence. That's what's going on right now. We're competing ourselves out of existence in the name of consumption and uh, and status quo and survival, which doesn't have to be based on the things that it's been based on for the past century or so. Scarcity. It all comes down to scarcity. scarcity. And so much of yeah. our culture is a relic of scarcity, this attitude of, oh, I can't let so-and-so get this because then I won't be able to get it. But that's not true. We can have an abundance. We can come from an abundant place and all have access to everything that we really need or even want. People get like uh, this general misperception of um, the hierarchy, uh, the artificial hierarchy. They get it mixed up with the actual hierarchy, you know, where people do have certain skill sets, other people don't. But it doesn't mean that we're naturally competitive. It just means that according to our environment, some people are conditioned to do things and some people are conditioned to do other things. And so my mind just always goes back to that whole argument where we're supposed to be competitive and this is natural. So capitalism must be the best system because it's premised on competition, but it's just not so. It's just not so. Well, everybody does have something that they are uniquely disposed to do. All of us do. We have a proclivity, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that I do, and I think a lot of us can do a lot of things. We should move away from this I only do one thing attitude where we could all be, you know, Renaissance people, you know, with many skills and hobbies and, you know, the ability to play music and the ability to paint and draw and to uh, tinker in scientific applications and to, you know, do what we're doing and kind of build the world and and kind of plan society in in this way. Some people want to build things. Everybody has something that they want to do. And in a society that makes knowledge proprietary and makes knowledge itself something that you have to pay to uh, to acquire, and a system that really, truly, I realized this at the post office the other day, I was fuming, and I just realized how wrong this is, that a human being is sitting behind a desk, a servant to a computer that could be completely easily automated, that a human being with hopes, dreams, fears, a life story, parents, children, whatever, goes in there every day and sits behind a cash register and does a pointless fucking job all day, every day that could they easily be automated away. to be a servant to the system. 
And if they don't, they die. For for what reason? For just this crazed delusion of economics, of anti anti economics that doesn't eco- economize our resources. It blows them. Uh, it, it intentionally devours more and more and more all the time. So it's just truly crazy. It's crazy that that a human life has been. Oh, I was going to say that that people need to be at a certain level of uneducation to basically submit to servitude like that, to not see that this is an insane system, that hell no, I'm not going to go and do that while you get to let your money make money for you, that people can't be educated to a certain degree. So we need our society to literally be stupid for this system where there's uh, that's based on there, there being a master and a slave class to continue working. Otherwise, the whole thing flips over. So imagine a world where education is free where anybody can just learn how to do whatever they want. Everybody would figure out the thing that they want to do or could do well or the multiple things they could do or do well. That it, that alone, I think that right there alone would radically transform things in under a generation. If people could just, oh, I can learn whatever I want for free and I don't have to spend the majority of my life you know, generating arbitrary amounts of profit for my employer, I'm free and I, and I don't... I don't have to work or die. I can actually figure out what it is in my life that I want to contribute to society. And we have a society, not a bunch of people trying to eat each other. <laughs> Sign me up. As complicated as that as those five points may seem, really it's it's a radically beautiful world. I mean, it's a world where, you know, if you want a yacht, you got a yacht. It's a world where you don't have to think about food. You don't have to think about healthcare. All of this stuff becomes automated away. I mean, imagine the potential that we could reach if we just didn't have to think about this shit. If we didn't have to, you know, sit in traffic and grit our teeth on our way to a job that we hate, that we only do just so that we can meet these most basic needs, a job that pr- predominantly literally doesn't matter, isn't helping the world or pr- contributing to society, and is in fact doing the opposite and is driving us closer to the cliff. I mean, just imagine a world where. There's true equality where there's we don't walk around and have this sense that everyone around us is a fucking idiot or that we can't trust people or that that everybody's coming for us or, or trying to take what we have. And that's why people are afraid of, of, a, of new things and systems that challenge that, that do seek to, to create abundance because – in a lot of ways, people identify with this this condition. They're adapted, you know, to just to just make do and get by and say, "Oh, okay, it's it's worse for me to accept that there's a better world out there than to just say, okay, this is this is life. Life is suffering, and there's nothing we can do about it. So I'm just going to adapt to it, like a person in prison who loses hope that there's a world outside those walls and gets angry when they see a bird fly in, because we would rather bear the ills we have." Then fly to others we know not. But we really don't have a choice. This antiquated system has reached its limit and fails to meet our most basic needs and keep up with the real demands of our ecosystem, the real life ground upon which all else depends. And before the hooks of a dying worldview start clawing at you to conjure up all these anxious reasons why uh, that, that, that can't be or or it would fail or how we tried that and blah, 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 blah. I want you to put your energy instead toward imagining how it could work what such a world would would look like how it would work what and what your place in it could be and how we can come together to overturn the false limits of the collective psychological hang-up of monetary scarcity that's it that's what we're fighting and transcend into a world of abundance beyond anything before possible. Help us spread this vision and make it more real every day. Subscribe, share your thoughts and ideas in the comments, and help us keep dreaming this impossible dream at patreon.com slash moneylesssociety. The only thing that gives this monetary system power over our lives and world is belief in its value. That's it. And the threat of extreme violence, the coercion of deprivation for noncompliance, and a massive propaganda apparatus doing everything in its power to keep you from imagining other worlds. But the first step, really, is actually aligning ourselves with the reality, the hard truth, that a better world is possible.